You're listening to The Perth Property Show, Australia's only weekly property podcast by West Australian experts for West Australian listeners. Catch your latest episode every Monday at 7am. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to The Perth Property Show. My name's Trent Fleskins, your host as always. Quick reminder, tomorrow we have our Intro to Property Development webinar. Already 300 people signed up. Get in there before we cap out online with the bandwidth. Uh, head over to the Strategic Property Group website and at the top you can register 5.30 tomorrow night. Now, today we are talking about family court orders, related party transfers, those sort of things. All the stuff that a settlement agent does that you probably didn't know they did. It's not just buyers and sellers. It's all the other transfers in between to transfer titles across for various reasons, good and bad, pleasant and unpleasant. And the one person we have to speak to is my favorite settlement agent, superstar Brooke O'Connor. Thank you very much for coming in. No problems. Mate, I appreciate you walking a couple of meters across the room from Strategic Settlements Office. <laughs> Thank you very much, mate. Let's talk about that whole space I just mentioned there. What's different about that type of work and the experience for your clients compared to just a normal offer and acceptance? Court order or related party transfers are often fueled with emotions uh, different to the emotions that you carry when you're selling or buying. Because they're ordered by court for a reason, right? Yeah, and and sometimes it's very amicable and and easygoing and, and they're very easy to process. The process is the same for us regardless. We prepare transfers, we have them stamped, coordinate banks and get them to settlement. The best thing for a client in that situation is to get it through efficiently, quickly, have everyone up to date. It's basically the means to an end and something they'd really like to see resolved and completed. Normally a court orders a product of a divorce or uh, something like that where a sale is being made and we can't agree on what goes where or what goes to who. They do often have uh, parts of the court order that refer to if for any reason one party can't pay out the other and therefore refinance it into their own name, what happens after that? And that often can be going to sale. So they give them a certain amount of time to refinance it to the person that wants to keep the property. In a lot of cases, that might not be possible. And that's why the sale needs to happen, right? Correct. So values are very relevant in court order situations. Just because one party wants to keep the property doesn't always mean that they're going to be able to refinance it pay out the existing debt and pay to the other party what it is they want to be paid. I guess the an awkward situation sometimes really would be that you possibly have the wife who wants to keep the family home in a divorce. She might not be working full time or might not have the income a lot of the time. That's a reality, right? To be able to cover the full mortgage that was covered by both parties initially. And as much as she'd like to keep the home, there's a court order that says you need to sell it because you can't get a loan to keep it. That's correct. And even in the situation where it's a childless partnership or whatever the case may be, if the existing debt is above what the current values are, I would suggest it would be very hard for anyone unless they had a big stash of cash somewhere to actually be able to refinance. Because they need their 20%, right? What about related party transfers? What, what does that mean? We see that on settlement agents' websites. We hear about that term. Is that just getting your your husband or wife or brother or sister on the title with you? It's basically any type of transaction that isn't a court order because we refer to them as court order settlements and they are related party transactions, but they're just quite more specific. But a related party is anything else. So Where there's no money involved? Money, no money, anything. So often we see the consideration as gift, natural love and affection. There could be an actual amount. It might just have been a verbal agreement. 
There could be an, a written agreement. There's all different reasons that people might transfer property around. In terms of timeframes and costs, do they take longer? Are they quicker? Uh, obviously, there's not as much of a time pressure when it comes to getting this done compared to an offer and acceptance that might have a specific date. That's right. In settlements, purchase and sale, there are dates written into the contract, legal promises and obligations on each party that time is of the essence. Might in be a, three weeks after finance or four weeks after finance, right? Yeah, it's a it's an agreement, so they must keep to those dates. In a related party transfer, there's often not dates, so it's as soon as possible, and that's how long is a piece of string. If you're asking somebody to arrange their loan documents, what time frame are you giving them to do that? So it's generally as quick as the parties would like it to be affected, and as quick as we can possibly make it happen. And which government authority are we going through to get that done? Is it different to a normal sale and purchase? Nope, all of the same agencies. Most of the time cannot utilise the electronic settlement platform. They don't do part shares, so we can't do it on there. It'll always be a paper settlement. And there's usually banks involved, always state revenue and always laying gate. Okay. Are they generally put to the bottom of the pile because they're not time sensitive? Is, would that make a difference with regards to how long it takes to get done or are they all treated equally? We personally like to have a turnaround time for a client from when they engage us to when we complete. We can try and pull them forward a bit if they have some sort of urgency or they need to get it through. If we can, we will. They definitely don't get put to the bottom of the pile, but... We can't make things happen simply because people want them to be done in a week. They do take time. So you're looking at about four weeks. That is a bit of a, sometimes a bit of a misunderstanding with people that come in, clients, that it's quick, a quick form, a week later it's done. Uh, we're sort of, as a settlement agent, you can be beholden very much so to how long it takes Landgate to process these documents or courts to process these documents, right? We can't start the process until we have sealed court orders in the court order situation. The related party transfers, once documents are signed up, we can start the process for the client. Then it's up to their instructions. So it's a lot of managing expectations. One word that I hear a lot when we're talking about related party transfers, especially, is the word called probate. How does that come into things? How does that affect timeframes and the processes, really? So probate is obviously where one of the registered proprietors has passed away and the property isn't being treated in a survivorship capacity where... If they were joint tenants with another owner, the other owner would just take their share. When you're waiting for probate, that has to go through the Supreme Court. And that process, again, we're not really on top of how long that process is each time, what affects the timeframes even. We can manage the timeframes once probate has come through. I've seen probate take like a year. Yeah, that's it's not so much something that as a settlement agent, we are up to date with those timeframes because we don't know why the will or is or isn't um, put through the courts, why the probate is or isn't granted in a certain time frame. Once it's granted... Then it comes to settlement agent. Then we have control over that time frame. So what you mean is essentially probate has to happen before a settlement agent can affect the related party transfer. Correct. That Again, that would probably be what I noticed to be one of the biggest confusions as well is that people might come to a settlement agent before they got probate and they go, hey, can we fix this up? Can we get this done? It's like, well, have you got probate? And the answer will be, oh, what's that? And then it goes through that process. And then you have to come back to a settlement agent to get that done. Often there is also other parts of that process that they wouldn't have realised may need to be affected prior to the probate part being completed. So the transfer to the executors or the beneficiaries in that there may be a previously deceased partner on the title that has to be taken off first by survivorship. 
a lot of the time the title is lost. Mm. So we have to do a lost title application. There can be quite a lot involved simply in an estate being transferred to its executors. With regards to settlement agent fees, when it comes to court orders and related party transfers, again, transfers that are not from sale and purchase, are they normally more expensive or less less expensive than a normal settlement from a buyer and a seller? I would say they're definitely less, being that the risk and the timeframes that we're working to aren't actually going to penalise parties most of the time. Secondly to that, we could be talking about a change of name by marriage. That's in a way a related party trans- a transaction where we are just changing the name of the title. If someone's refinancing, we're adding the spouse for no stamp duty because they're refinancing. They're quite simple transactions. Things that a settlement agent has to do, but it's pretty simple on the spectrum. Yeah. So as you get more difficult and as the uh, depth of the transaction becomes a little more in- intricate, that's the where the fees may creep up a little bit. Yeah. Okay. Understood. I think what's really important to note here is that there might be a lot of people out there wondering, geez, my, my old man or my mum's just passed away or I'm looking to get my spouse on. I've been putting this off for a few years or uh, we're looking, you know, inheriting some, some property from my parents bef- you know, and they're still alive. All those things, what do we do? I think the first person to call is just a settlement agent because this is what they do every day. I would suggest that, yeah. And even though we do only process the end part of the, the whole process, we know what we need to get to that point. You can provide a level of guidance as to, look, you might be at stage A and we can only help you at stage C, but uh, this is what you need to do from B. Correct. Yeah. Brooke, thank you very much for coming in. Really quick and, and positive chat, I think, just about some of the questions we get from people who are rightfully so quite confused about how the hell do I transfer property to people that I know. We get a lot of these inquiries daily and uh, I'm actually amazed often at the different types of transfers going on all over the place all of the time. They're very interesting. Keeps the job fun. <laughs> Thanks, mate. Have a good day. Thanks. Suburb Spotlight time. We are talking about Stronghold in the centre of Perth, really. It's Mount Lawley, one of our most historic areas. Very traditional Federation-style homes. A lot of them through there. A lot of heritage, a lot of beautiful, expensive houses. And our famous Beaufort Street area as well. So for that conversation, we have the man who is super active in Mount Lawley right now. It's Chris Pham from Realmark. Thank you very much for coming in, mate. Thanks, Trent. Thanks for having me. Chris, let's start at the beginning of time in Mount Lawley. It goes back a lot further than most suburbs, a lot further than uh, even last century. Where did really Mount Lawley start? Why is it called Mount Lawley? What is that background all about? Mount Lawley uh, was actually named after Sir Arthur Lawley, the governor of WA in the early 1900s. Oh, wow, okay. The subdivision started, I think it was called part of the Highgate Hill back in the 1850s, where that, that section between the city and Walcott Street. And then after that, they actually did the subdivision of Mount Lawley in the early 1900s, and they call it the Mount Lawley Estates. So it was an estate back then? Yeah, it was a estate. It wasn't even a suburb? It was an estate. So there was Mount Lawley Estates 1 and 2, and uh, that's where now it's the prestigious part of Mount Lawley between Walcott Street and First Ave., uh, and it borders Railway Parade, and the other side is Alexander Drive. That whole area there, the estate's actually quite nice because they plan it around all the hills and so forth, so the streets aren't necessarily all straight. It's a quite an undulating suburb, right? Yes, That's why it it's is. called Mount Lawley. That's You've got correct. some really good views of the city. You do. And one of the most famous streets, the most expensive street, is Hillview Road. And from that, uh, you get spectacular views of the city. So the blocks are all very large, and the people that lived there were government officials and so forth so well know. to do at the time yeah. even 
That's yep. correct. And even today, obviously, that just given the price point, uh, there's not a lot of development opportunities in Mount Lily. So most of those homes are still big. They're still expensive. The land's expensive. The houses are even more expensive. You can have some record prices in Mount Lily on a monthly basis. Yeah, you can. Um, all that area there is still very low zoning or zone R10. There isn't any... Uh, and it's also part of Stirling Council uh, Heritage Protection Area. So you'll find that uh, you can't knock those properties A lot down. of those federation homes especially, they're, they're there to stay. Yes, they're there to stay. You've some you know, beautiful, you know, a lot of access streets as well, like Longroyd and Woodroyd and... Uh, North Street. Lawley Street, those sort of... Yeah, North Street. Some of those areas, you look at the homes and you think, holy moly, they're multi-million dollar homes, they've got views of the city. Why would people choose to live in Mount Lawley rather than somewhere in the western suburbs? Because the price points are fairly similar. Mount Lawley is one of those areas whereby there's a buzz happening because it's so close to the city. you also got access to the river. Um, there's also good schools as well. But but I think it's because of the close proximity to the city. You can go, you can literally walk into Northbridge. You can walk into the CBD as well. And it's just got great access to all the shops and so forth as well. So you think it's for that same level of socioeconomics, but on the city dwelling side of things, people who prefer the city rather than the ocean. And also there's more buzz like it's, I don't know, the western suburbs, there's that level of urbanness, you know, that just isn't it's kind of very suburbia over there while mount lawley there's so much happening there's a lot going on there's festivals there's uh, obviously not right now but there's there's a lot more eateries there's a lot more of those weekend festivals you've got even the inglewood night markets a lot of people from mount lawley would enjoy that as well uh, as well as everything as you said that comes from being close to northbridge but also leaderville it's not too far away either no yeah close to leaderville bedford inglewood you know there's things happening there as well so um yeah it's, it's kind of like a little hot spot and everything surrounding it uh, is quite easily accessible. Quick drive or most people in the area just walk around everywhere, which is great as well. You mentioned schools, uh, some good good schools, some good zonings in Mount Lawley. What, what do you got to offer there? Mount Lawley Primary School is highly rated. It's one of the top primary schools in the area. Mount Lawley High School is in the top 10 schools in the state as well. And then with the private schools uh, such as Perth College, which is a girls' school, which is uh, extremely high, highly rated. A lot of families just buy in the area to go to Perth College. And a lot of areas, uh, lots of families now are also buying the area to go to Mount Lawley Primary. For those that live in Mount Lawley between uh, Walcott Street and the city, their option there is Highgate Primary, and that's also a highly desirable school. Uh, that school's got over 63 different nationalities in it. Wow. It's just a great environment for kids to grow in and experience a high-level multiculturalism that, that you don't really see anywhere else in Perth. A lot of parks as well. You know, you can benefit from Hyde Park. You can benefit from Hamer Park, uh, the parkland around uh, HBF Stadium there as well, or H- HBF Park where Perth Glory play. Yep. Uh, you got Forest Park. Forest Park. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of that there. greenery, isn't there? Yeah, there is a lot of greenery. Uh, lots of places to walk your dogs, uh, to exercise your dogs as well. So, you know, that's, there's quite a lot of going for it. And we also have the river side of Mount Lawley as well, whereby you can walk along the river there and go into East Perth or go down into mainlands as well. Let's move on to price points. Uh, not that many price points in Mount Lawley. Obviously, you've got a lot of your old flats, small flats, don't you? And you've got expensive houses. Yeah. Uh, hit me from the cheapest to the most expensive. As step it up a bit for okay. us. Okay. So Mount Lawley is actually kind of um, split up into four zones. So the the section between Walcott to the city is one zone. 
the prestigious area between Walcott to First Second Avenue is another zone, and then the avenues from First Avenue to Fifth is the third zone, and then you've got the Riverside. So they all kind of like they're separate little markets, and they have their own pricing within these areas. You get what's the cheapest area of the four? Surely it'd be train station side. Yeah, that is the cheapest area. Yeah. yeah, that's right. In terms of cost per square meter, that is the cheapest area of the side. Yeah, and the most correct. expensive, it's got to uh, be the that sort of lawley. Yeah, the, the original estate. The mount. Yeah, the yeah. original mount lawley estates one and two is the most expensive. You can buy a one unit flat for around 180000 These are the old BGC 60s flats yeah. where you're walking up five flights of, of stairs. Of stairs. Get, yeah, they're actually not too bad. They've been, most of them are actually quite well maintained. I'm actually selling one at the moment on Long Laurie Street. Uh, it's in a small complex of just uh, 16, uh, just a w- one better. But, you know, location's great. The bus comes out in front. Very well maintained and great location. And you're surrounded by multi-million dollar homes. It's a cheap place to be for the same lifestyle as the guy in a $3 million house next door. That's correct. Mm. And the great thing is the rent. You can rent those out between 220 to 250 per week. So mm. great investment return as well. And then from there, you go to your seven to $800,000 homes, you know, older style homes on smaller blocks, like 300 square, square metre blocks. Are these uh, the old three-by-one villas? There, there's not really much villas in, uh, in Mount Lawley. Uh, these, these tend to be the older 1920s, 1930s subdivided homes in, um, in between Walcott and, and the city. You can get some of them up to about 800000 Okay, all right. So we're talking the really high-dense city stuff just on the southern yeah. side of Mount Lawley. Yeah. On the North Perth border. That's correct. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, and then from there, you, skip, you then step into the million-dollar properties whereby it's a full block, uh, and that's also between uh, Walcott Street and the city. In the avenues, then you're getting to one early ones, and then you're getting to the bigger blocks, you know, 600 square metres. And then once you get into fully renovated, it goes to 1.2 to 1.5. And then in the estates, that's where you're getting from 1.5 to $3 million. Yeah, special homes. Yeah, special homes. Let's quickly go back again to the, the 300 square metre blocks. We're talking the area sort of behind the Scotsman and along Beaufort Street. Just as it gets close to North Perth, I would call them, I guess, the the terraces, really. The the great thing about that area is the location. You know, you can walk down to Beaufort Street and catch a meal or uh, or do some shopping. And the bus runs there every 10 minutes. So uh, it's higher density living, but, um, you know, people don't seem seem to mind it. 300 square metres is still quite a lot these days. A lot of rear laneway stuff going on around there as well with some subdivision opportunity just in that small pocket behind Beaufort Street. Yeah, that is a lot. Uh, it's mostly zone R40 around there. Uh, on the other side of Beaufort Street, zoned R50. So uh, there's there's a lot of opportunities. Like someone can buy a single residence for about a million dollars, subdivide it, do up the front, and sell it off for around nine hundred thousand, and build something on the back and sell it off for about a million dollars. So there is a lot of money to be made. Yeah, uh, they're tightly held blocks, so there's not many they, of them. They are. That's the other problem. They are very tightly held. A uh, lot of people that own those blocks have lived there. Like It's mainly a lot of Europeans have settled there in the 1950s and they have stayed there to now. Until they go into a nursing home or whatever, it's hard to get into the area. Yeah, some deceased estates, I guess. That's mostly what's happening so the um, most a lot of properties that are coming up are deceased estates. One thing that we've sort of skipped over a bit is just your general buyer and seller in that market. Can you explain, can you typecast for me who you, who's coming to you to try and buy into the area? I guess it might be different across the different zones uh, uh, and who's selling. Yeah, 
Um, most of the buyers are young professionals. Uh, they love the proximity to the city and want to start their families, uh, their new families there, especially in the around the million dollar price bracket. When you're getting to the larger properties, I'm finding that they are also young families, but you know with quite a large salary, and that they building, they buying fully renovated or something to re- renovate in the in the avenues. The type of people that are selling, you've got the two extremes. You've got downsizers, so they've got their huge mansions. They no longer want to maintain them, but they want to live in the area. So they still want a large home, but not necessarily the, the large quarter acre block. So they're looking at selling. And then the other people, the ones which have lived there for a very long time and just, you know, selling because it's a deceased estate or, or whatever. And then, then you've got, you know, lots of bits in between where people are looking to upsize as well, like living in the area, but want to move to a better position street or better location and so forth. So a lot of people are buying within the suburb, staying, recycling through. Yeah, definitely a lot of buyers in the suburb. So you see, I guess people sort of like you know, Trig last week, where Sean Sean Hughes was saying that people pay as much as much as they have to just to get in, and then from that point move up the ladder within that suburb. That's what a lot of people say. You know, we just want to get in into the the area, live there for a couple of years, renovate, and then as things grow over the years, you know, their property value will increase. They've done all the renovations, and uh, and then they either look to move to something bigger as the family gets larger, or if they're there for a really long time, then downsize. You know, twenty, thirty years down the track. Do you think there's much of a market for the the new apartment buildings that have come up in the last couple of years? Has it have they done well? The, the large apartment complexes have mainly. Uh, attracted uh, younger groups of people that like to live in the area but don't necessarily afford the million dollar median price because uh, those apartments tend to be about the five fifty to six hundred dollars 600000 price range. But I do see like the three bedrooms, the penthouses, they do attract uh, a lot of the downsizers. Yeah, I mean, for me, I think there's a great market there for some more, as you said, large format boutique developments where you've got, you know, up to maybe... 12 to 16 three by twos to yeah. allow for that downsizer coming out of their one and a half million dollar place on the avenues pop up right next to the uh, to Beaufort Street in a 1.2 1.3 million dollar beautiful three by two 150 square meter apartment I, I think that would be fantastic for the area and guess what is coming Oh, great. So, uh, do you know the the old Highgate Dry Cleaners site there on Beaufort Street, yep. uh, literally next to Mary Street Bakery? Yep. That's being developed by Barry Boltoners, yep. and uh, he's putting in a showroom in the next couple of weeks there, and that's what he's developing there. Uh, they're going to be like three-story apartments. It'll be great to see how well they're taken up. Yeah, I reckon they'll do quite well. It's going to be very boutique. It's going to look amazing, and the fitter is going to be amazing as well. So um, he's briefing me on that in the next couple of weeks. So I'll, I'll definitely have some information there for people. Great. Uh, let's move into that last part of uh, the segment today, Chris. It's the median house price. Chris Pham, what is the median house price in Mount Lawley? It hovers around a million dollars. So it's it's been hovering a little bit above, a little bit below, but it's, it's around the million dollar mark. Is that a fair median house price? Does it fairly reflect most, you know, a good median in Mount Lawley? Yeah, it is. We don't really have much uh, outlying sales in the 2 to $3 million. Most of the sales are definitely around the million-dollar price range. So if you had that in your pocket today, what would you buy with a million dollars? I would buy an old character property 
that's on an R40, R50 zoning, do that up, subdivide, and sell off the front and build something and sell off the back. Like a Grosvenor Street, something like that? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting little spot there. It has probably the best of both worlds in that area. Uh, you've got Mount Lawley, Beaufort Street, but you've also got the, the North Perth Hyde Park space really close as well. And you know, at a stretch, a walking distance from the city for work too. So um, I think you're right in the middle of the action in that area. You're surrounded by most of the most amazing amenities, like you said, high park, so much going on both the street. The bus comes every 10 minutes. Uh, you can easily walk into the city as well. So, And it's just a great place to live. There's buzz about it. Uh, everyone, the neighbours, everyone's really friendly. And there's just so much happening there as well. Chris, thank you very much for coming in to chat Mount Lawley today. I look forward to having you in again soon. Thanks, Trent. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Perth Property Show. If you've only just joined the conversation, you can catch up by heading over to our website, perthpropertyshow.com.au, subscribing to the podcast or joining our Facebook page. Don't forget to tune in next Monday at 7am for more expert insights, local analysis and suburb spotlights. Happy hunting!